quick disclaimer, the views and opinions expressed in this podcast are provided for informational purposes only and should not be construed as an offer to buy or sell any securities or to make or consider any investment or course of action. For more information, go to bestevershow.com. Don't get too bogged down with if somebody doesn't reciprocate and treat you the way that you wish to be treated as well. So stay out of your head there and just do the right thing. And this way you could sleep at night and know that you did your best and you were good to everybody along the way. Welcome to the Best Ever Show, the world's longest running daily commercial real estate podcast. Our hosts interview commercial real estate experts every day to get you the best advice ever with none of the fluffy stuff. Best ever listeners, welcome to the best real estate investing advice ever show. I'm Slocum Reed, and today I'm joined by Peter Neal and Ron Lockhart. They are based in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. They are co-founders and partners of GSP REI, a vertically integrated real estate investment firm focusing on affordable and workforce single-family rentals and non-performing loans. Their total portfolio among real estate and notes is $55 million in assets under management. Peter and Ron, can you tell us a little bit more about your backgrounds and your current focus? Sure. Slocum and the best ever. We appreciate you having us on. It's an honor to be here. So I started my real estate investing journey about nine years ago. I was raising capital for a distressed mortgage investment fund. I did that for more than a few years and then left to go on my own and I partner with Ron. We started GSP REI, where we focus on single family, affordable and workforce housing, like you said. So my strength and what I like to focus on in the business is on the fundraising side building rapport with investors, understanding their goals, helping them to reach their personal goals through our investment strategies, as well as just fund structuring and fund management as a whole and everything that goes into managing our funds successfully. Slocum, thank you for having us. As Peter mentioned earlier, I'm more on the operational side of the business. Peter handles the things that are not my favorite things to do. My background in real estate started almost 25 years ago, it's hard to believe, I started out on the construction side of the business, and quickly that evolved into construction and investment. I've been a partner in a real estate finance company that handled both residential and commercial. I've consulted, worked with government services entities, and our primary focus right now, which is building a single-family affordable housing rental portfolio, is the culmination of 20-plus years of bringing that all together. And your partnership is primarily focused on building a portfolio of low-income and workforce single-family rentals? Correct. And as you mentioned earlier, we also do work on the non-performing note side. We really use that as a conduit and a pipeline going upstream and acquiring non-performing notes that eventually will become part of the rental portfolio. The idea being that you're buying those notes at a discount. So either you're getting a really solid return when that borrower eventually pays or sells, or you're getting real estate at a fairly significant discount if you have to foreclose. Is that the idea? That's correct. And we deal a lot with HECMs, which are government-backed reverse mortgages. So the foreclosure dynamic of that is a little bit different because the owners are deceased. Our focus in acquiring notes is really not to do workouts and have performing loans. These are notes that are pretty far down the pipeline as far as defaults and the odds of there being an ongoing borrower is, is pretty slim. You know, I've heard of a reverse mortgage and I've heard of it used 
as an opportunity for like an income stream for someone who is retired elderly needs that sort of income to cover living expenses, especially increased medical expenses. I have yet to meet anyone who specializes in buying those notes after those people pass though. Logistically speaking, how does that work? So as far as the acquisition of that type of note, the Heckams are very specific. They're government backed. And our one partner, Wade Carroll, who isn't on the call today, is the one who specializes in the note acquisitions. We have a relationship with HUD through a nonprofit that's based in Arizona. So when we target those loans, they're government set aside auctions specific to Heckams. So it's a very specific type of note. It's not something that we focus on where we're going out looking for defaulted reverse mortgages. These are all government-backed deceased borrowers, low barrier to taking the property back in the end. So it's a very specific focus. Is your portfolio concentrated in Philadelphia then? The majority of our portfolio is Maryland, New Jersey, and Pennsylvania. Maryland, New Jersey, Pennsylvania. Why those three states? When you were giving our intro and the term in there, vertically integrated, is a big part of what we do in our company. We're able to touch all three of those states physically, our construction management, our property management, our asset management, our acquisitions are all in-house. We don't outsource anything. So we want to be able to look, touch, feel whatever assets we're bringing to the portfolio. When you look at Pennsylvania, Maryland, and New Jersey, that's the bulk of where our rental portfolio is. Like Ron said, because we're vertically integrated, we want to have our boots on the ground. We want to control the whole process from acquisition to lease and management. The note side of the business, that's one of those things where when we get a tape from HUD, we don't have control over where those assets are. So we're in 40 different states when it comes to that. But when it comes to our real property portfolio, We want it somewhat close to us, kind of in our backyard, so that we can be on site and we can make sure our projects are staying on time and on budget. So in order to buy the notes, you have to buy the notes basically all over the country. But when it comes to the real estate that you're going to keep in your portfolio and hold longer term, you're focusing on the stuff that is close enough to you in Philly that you can own or operate. Is that correct? Exactly. So there's other disposition strategies for notes that don't fit our workforce and affordable housing model when it comes to the rental side. So we could dispose of those in a number of different ways, but anything that fits the Philadelphia market, Baltimore, South Jersey, that's going to be something that we're going to hopefully keep within our rental portfolio if the numbers make sense and it fits our rental model. With regards to overall investment thesis and business plan, not specific to any individual note or house, but with regards to the trajectory of your company, why is it that you're investing this way? Why is it that this is the business plan, the strategy that makes the most sense for you all? That's a big question, Ron. You want me to take it and then you can add it here. So there's five things that we've determined through our own personal experience and then just research and data that we see on the market and stuff that's available to us through different news sources and things like that. But I would argue that when you look at all real estate sectors, industrial, retail, office, multifamily apartments, I think you could argue that affordable housing has the most demand and the least supply. 
So just starting off with the demand metric, that's one thing that attracted us to affordable housing and really the single family side. Multifamily affordable housing tends to be more in the studio, one bedroom, maybe two bedroom. And you see the demand from a tenant's perspective is typically more the two to four bedroom. So yeah, a lot of these people have families with kids. They want this to be their home. They want a, a two to four bedroom house where they can grow their family and they can live comfortably. So we saw a demand for those types of properties. And there's a lot of research that goes that way. Like Pew Research just put out something, this was maybe last year, where you, when you ask people about affordable housing in their communities, almost half of people out there, like 49% of people will say that there's an affordable housing crisis or it's hard to find affordable housing. So going into underserved markets and redeveloping properties, you can get them at a great price point. And then there's strong demand for renters that are looking for properties like that. So I would say that's definitely the main reason is just supply and demand. Second would be affordable housing, especially single family, provides favorable yield throughout the entire economic cycle. So there's a ton of uncertainty right now in the market with equity, with cap rates and things like that. Because of the supply and demand metrics, single family affordable housing tends to stay somewhat insulated from a lot of the craziness that's going on. So when you have a certain portion of the portfolio that's subsidized, meaning the rents are coming directly from the government, it provides some stability when it comes to downturns and recessions. You don't see as much concession or, or rent peeling back either, like you sometimes would see in market rate during a recession or a downturn. And a lot of that too could just have to do with the demand. You'll see lower vacancy rates. So the yield and those rents tend to trend with market rent. And in single family world, they could sometimes trend above market rent. So yield is another thing and just consistency during downturns and recessions. The third thing that kind of played on with the last one was just government subsidies. The ability for there to receive government subsidies, a majority of the assets in the portfolio provides consistent income. So there's some predictability in the income. And to kind of go off of government subsidies for the fourth aspect, I would say, would be there's a lot of federal, state, and local impact investing goals that are towards creating more affordable housing. And that's nationwide. It's in urban areas, suburban areas, rural areas. The government, state, and local federal is trying to create incentives for investors like ourselves to go out and to rehabilitate, renovate existing units, and make them available to these types of people who need these properties. And then fifth thing I would say is there's a low barrier to entry financially. Sometimes you can pick up properties for $10,000, dollars $40,000, $40, but there's a very high barrier to success. So you need to have very strong professional management on the construction side, on the property management side, to make sure that you're successfully executing in this space, because I've seen a lot of people get in trouble if they don't know what they're doing when it comes to renovating properties that you're buying fully distressed or even renovating value-add properties and then managing scales of single-family properties as well. So I would say they're like the five main metrics that drew us into the single-family affordable housing space. And then we could speak to any of those in more detail or, or anything like that. 
Those points make a whole lot of sense. You guys have done a great job of describing, explaining your business model and how you execute on your business plan with it from acquisition to rent. It is still a very complicated thing to implement. Like you said, low barrier to entry, high barrier to success. We don't need to get into specifics, especially with your acquisitions partner not being here, but it sounds like you're able to end up acquiring the physical real estate in your portfolio significantly discounted even after you factor the renovations that these houses will require before you rent them. Bottom dollar though, what matters the most given that this is still an investment is the returns. So globally speaking, what do your returns look like executing on this business plan? Brian, is that something you wanted to? Sure. We can break this down. We have a very specific model that we developed over a period of time. And we didn't want to look at this as just a six month period, a one month period. We wanted to do this over a number of years. So from approximately 2018 through 2019, we really honed in on what our sweet spot was and what markets were the best targets to achieve the returns we were looking for. And to go back to something you said a minute ago about buying at a discount, that is a component of our model, but also the way we operate and the fact that we maintain control of the construction and property management in-house and specifically the construction management we can carve about 20 to 25% of that cost out, or we can lower our cost by 20 to 25%, which makes the model more workable. And on average, and this takes geographically, whether it be Pennsylvania, New Jersey, or Maryland, on average, acquisition and construction, we want to be into a property for no more than $115,000 per door. Those properties per door on average, appraised at about 165000 per door. After refinance and after debt service, all expenses, we're averaging between $300 and $400 net profit per door. And that's the model. And that's what we've developed over time. And we've been able now to sustain it for the better part of five years. So on a per door basis, that's what our return looks like. Peter, Ron, the Best Summer Podcast is a daily podcast, generally with an emphasis on commercial real estate, and we have a very sophisticated listener base. The majority of our listeners are passive investors in real estate syndications. They're people who are looking to deploy capital for a return. And that's simply a numbers game. There are way more LPs in the world than there are GPs. The active investors that we interview the vast majority of them will say that as you become a more competent, experienced, sophisticated investor, you should scale. You have to scale the property size as your portfolio grows because operating on a 100-unit apartment building is exponentially simpler than operating on 100 units in 100 different single family homes, not to mention the number of roofs, plumbing systems, mechanical systems that you would have in those single family homes is so much greater. Generally speaking, your margins will end up being less because there's so much more physical real estate to take care of by comparison. 
you guys have very intentionally decided to not go that route. And that's where my questions are coming from here. I want our listeners to understand why it is that you're looking at working with a generally speaking difficult tenant base in generally speaking difficult real estate to manage when it comes to maintenance, renovations, capex. The returns make a lot of sense. Peter, you've introduced yourself as an investment manager or capital raiser. I imagine you do your capital raising in funds. What are the projected returns or what are the returns that you've been able to execute on for your investors thus far? So we launched our first fund in November of 2019. And a few months after that, we launched our second fund. And how we started was just fixed rate funds. So we just paid a fixed rate of return for a fixed term. So for one year, we would pay 9%. For a three-year hold, we would pay 10%. And then we had a 12% offering as well. So we've been able to pay those consistent promise preferred returns since inception without an issue. It was one thing from raising capital for over nine years now, and I've always raised capital for fixed rate funds. So just a fixed term for a fixed rate for a fixed term. One thing that's constantly come up is how can I get upside? How can I share in the tax advantages? Because there's two types of investors out there. There's people who just want consistent passive income on a monthly basis. And then there's people who want the upside. They don't need the consistent monthly income or they don't need a ton of consistent monthly income. They're already working their W-2 job or they have investments that are yielding them plenty of income on a monthly basis. So they're looking for upside. They're looking for tax advantage and stuff like that. So we went to the drawing board and we looked at our model and what we've actually done over the past couple years And we looked at it as what would it look like if we shared profit and equity with our investors and not just did a straight fixed percent preferred return. So we looked at everything that we've done and we ran it under a model. We stress tested it. So we took our rents down. We brought our interest rates up. We took our property values down. So we stress tested it in a million different ways. And we said, if we paid our investors a 6% preferred return, on a monthly basis. So they're still getting some consistent monthly income. And then we split the profit 50-50 and we split the equity 50-50. And the profit sharing would be semi-annually. So they would receive a check if profit was available every six months. And then their equity piece would be returned when they redeem within a five to seven year period with some ability to get out earlier if they would like and some potential stay in later if they would like to do that as well. And what we've came up with through the model was at average, if we raise $5 million and we refinance once a year, because unlike a lot of the commercial strategies, this isn't a disposition strategy. This is a generational type wealth building portfolio that we're putting together. We do not plan to sell, not that we don't look for opportunities and things like that, but the three of us partners really agree on the long-term hold strategy. So we're able to create liquidity and bring capital back into the fund through refinances. So we modeled it at one refinance a year, whereas typically we would like to see at least two to four. So our average annual return came out to around 20 to 23%. The average cash yield on an annual basis for five years was around 8 to 11%. And the equity multiple is about 2.5 to 2.8 times the initial investment at five years. So there are the returns that we're projecting in what we call our growth fund. 
So the fund that shares the upside and tax advantage and has that structure to the investors. Does that equity multiple of after five years of two and a half to 2.8, does that assume not necessarily that you have sold, but that your investors have effectively been bought out or paid out of their investment? Exactly. And that includes everything. So that adds up the preferred return they made, the profits put they made, and then their equity piece when they redeemed at the end. We'll get back to the show with first some sponsors I'm confident you'll find value in learning more about. Are you tired of spending hours managing your rental properties? Inago is here to simplify your life as a landlord or property owner with their free property management software. With Inago, you can say goodbye to complex and costly solutions. Inago is designed with simplicity in mind, focusing on the features that matter to you. From tenant screening and lease signing to rent collection and work order management, Inago has got you covered. They offer a seamless interface and dedicated support representatives to assist you in every step of the way. Join thousands of satisfied landlords and start streamlining your property management tasks today with Inago. Plus, you'll get a $25 Amazon gift card just for using Inago. Visit Inago.com forward slash best ever to get started and reclaim your time and sanity. That's I-N-N-A-G-O dot com forward slash best ever. Deciding how to invest your capital is more challenging than ever. That's why it's never been more important to partner with a company with a solid track record and that has thrived through various economic cycles. Companies like BAM Capital. BAM Capital is a trusted multifamily syndicator that has delivered a historical average of over 35% IRR with an average hold period of three and a half years. BAM Capital's never missed a preferred payment, never lost an LP's investment, and never called capital past the subscription amount. BAM Capital is currently raising capital for a fund designed for accredited investors targeting a 15 to 20% IRR and a 2 to 2.5x equity multiple to its investors over a three to five year hold period. If you're an accredited investor and you want to learn more about multifamily investment opportunities with BAM Capital, visit capital.thebamcompanies.com. Again, that's capital dot the bam companies dot com that definitely starts to answer my question thank you peter because that's a much higher equity multiple in aar than you often see with the kinds of multifamily syndications that i was just describing that most people will tell active investors that they need to get into so that makes a lot of sense and two Salcom, to speak to what you were saying one of the reasons we do what we do is because that's what we're built to do We don't want to go to the other side of the country or something like that and find a value add multifamily and manage it from a distance and work with a property manager, a construction manager. We want to be our own property manager and our own construction manager. So why we're in Philadelphia, Baltimore, South Jersey is because that's where we're from. They're the markets that we know really well. We grew up there. When we drive around, we know where we're at. We've seen the evolution of those areas for many, many years. So that was really substantial in choosing the markets that we invest in. Ron went to school in Maryland and had friends that stayed in that area. So when we went into that market, we knew people. We were able to tap into our existing network and spend a lot of time there before we ever deployed any capital there or anything like that. And it's where our crews are. Fortunately, Ron has construction crews and some guys who've been with him for 15 years or so. So we have roots in the areas that we invest in. We have our crews. 
So we've been able to scale in those areas. And then through technology that we've implemented, we're able to increase our portfolio over time, but keep in our timeframe and our budgets and make sure we're taking things slowly. It's not like we're looking to get from 100 units to 10,000 units overnight. We want to do things right. And there's a, certainly a progression to it. And it's not that we wouldn't go into other markets and stuff like that. It's just we feel that there's plenty of opportunity in the markets that we're in. And they're all close to us where we can be there relatively within a two-hour drive or less. So that has been a big part of defining our strategy over the past couple of years. And just to tie back to Slocum, something you brought up earlier, scale. And Peter just mentioned it again. We get asked this question a lot. If you're going to stick with these markets, are you going to run out of assets to acquire and develop and then subsequently run out? I'm going to give you an example. Use Baltimore. They have a backlog of voucher holders. And I'm just talking about Section 8. I'm not talking about across the affordable housing spectrum. They have a backlog of thousands and thousands of voucher holders that don't have a home to live in. So the demand is so high there. We could work there the next few years and we wouldn't even begin to scratch the surface. On the acquisition side of things, we have a number of different avenues for acquiring the assets. One of them is auction houses. We have a relationship with an auction house in Baltimore that sells about a thousand properties per year that are in complete disrepair, full renovation, totally dilapidated properties that fit the type of unit that we're looking for. And that's just in Baltimore. Philadelphia, it's the same thing. There is just a huge backlog and demand for the affordable housing. Southern New Jersey, which is closest to us, where we own the majority of our properties in New Jersey, same story. So we could work in these areas for the next 10 years, and we still have a lot of work to do. And to add to that point, I would say one thing that Ron and myself and our other partner, Wade, that we get along in is that we're all what I would call contrarian type investors. When everybody's out off doing one thing, we're looking for what, what else can we do? Especially with Baltimore, Baltimore gets a bad rap and just affordable housing in general. There's a lot of misconceptions when it comes to the tenants and the amount of work or the amount of damage they could do to a property or something like that, those misconceptions create a ton of opportunity for us. So when I go to an investor event or I speak to an investor and they're afraid of Baltimore or they're afraid of subsidized housing, affordable housing, period, that's where I see opportunity. I know we need to pivot our model when we go to an investor event and people are heavy in Baltimore or heavy in subsidized housing because you kind of know the tides are changing at that point. And I think it goes back to the one thing I said earlier where there's a low barrier to entry when it comes to financial. You don't need a ton of money to get started in this space, but there's a very high barrier to entry when it comes to success. And you have to have certain things in place from a management perspective in order to be successful when you're managing distressed property. And that's the same in market rate, or if you were renovating a warehouse or something like that too. But in this space, especially with managing tenants and stuff like that, you have to have a certain level of professionalism and experience in order to execute effectively. So that's a good reason too why there's not a ton of competition when it comes to the markets that we're in. We see people, consistent players, and we see some mom and pops where it's one of our strategies is kind of like a roll-up strategy, buying portfolios from smaller investors who've grown them over time and are looking to get out of them. 
So the markets we're in and the place that we play in has a lot to do with what we like and just our strategy and where we see opportunities to be able to get those types of yields that we've been getting. That makes a lot of sense. In the interest of time, I'm going to make some assumptions here. Answer on your behalf the questions I want to ask. Tell me where I am right. Tell me where I'm wrong. And then we'll transition the conversation. My next question would be, given the complexity to the strategy, and yes, Ron at least has been working towards this for 25 years, it sounds like. And by no means do I want to oversimplify what it takes to do what it is to execute on your strategies. My last question was, what do returns look like for your investors? And the returns that you mentioned were above average. They were above the returns that most people were targeting. You're talking about 2019. The 2019 investing landscape was very different from 2023 when we're recording now, but your metrics were still above average for syndicated real estate funds at the time. Follow-up question. I'm an active investor. A lot of our listeners are too. What do the returns look like for you or why would you structure as the active partners in this? Why would you structure your deals this way? And the answer that I'm coming to is that you've developed a strategy that allows you to amass a portfolio and deliver a return to investors buy those investors out and keep the portfolio after delivering on that return for the long term. Is that correct? That's correct. Personally, I find that very appealing because my investment goals end up being on that Warren Buffett hold forever style of goals and strategy. That makes a lot of sense. Are you all ready for the best ever lightning round? Let's do it. What is the best ever book each of y'all recently read? Every year for the past nine years, I think, I've been reading How to Win Friends and Influence People. And as a fundraiser, as somebody who's responsible for keeping those relationships with investors, that is a book that I constantly come back to. And just recently, I did my annual read-through of that book. I could give you a book from the past that I read, but I'm going to be perfectly honest with you. With four kids and this business, I don't have a whole lot of time to read. So when I do, and again, it's not often, it's something that actually takes my mind off of this because I spend so much time researching the markets. So it would have to be Separation of Power by Vince Flynn, which is a fiction book. So it definitely doesn't have to do with our industry, but it helps me clear my head. What are your best ever ways to give back? Right now, my focus has been giving back to the two people that gave me the most, which is my parents. So they're up there in age, and as they've gotten older, they've had certain health issues pop up and things like that. So anytime I can, I'm trying to give back to them, whether it just be spending time with them, but also helping with groceries and cooking and the stuff they need around the house and things like that. So a lot of time recently has been given back to them and it's an honor to help them because they've helped me so much over the years just in life and growing this business and all. They've always been there to support me and that kind of thing. Yeah, my answer is kind of twofold. In this business, we meet a lot of investors who are passive, who want to move beyond passive and do some of the things that we do. So when people come to me with those questions, I try and take as much time as I possibly can to help educate them on the process. 
in 20 plus years of doing this, I've made a lot of mistakes. I've certainly had my share of failures. So if I can help somebody bypass some of that, I certainly like to do that. And then the other thing is working the affordable housing space. I've developed a soft spot for the plight of what a lot of people in this country are facing. And we really do have an affordable housing crisis and a homeless crisis. I work in somewhat of an advisory role with a outreach program in Rio Grande, New Jersey, that helps with the homeless problem in that area and also transitional housing. So in any way that I can be helpful to them from an advisory standpoint, I like to think we're helping to solve some of that problem in some small way. Question for each of you again, on the deals that you've done, funds that you have funded, houses that you have acquired, what is the biggest mistake you've made and the best ever lesson that resulted from it? I'll take it from a capital raising perspective. And I've heard other people say this is, I'm not making this up. When's the best time to start raising capital? It's like the planting a tree thing where they say, you know, when's the best time to plant a tree? It's 20 today. years ago. Or 20 yeah. years ago. Yeah, and exactly. the second best yeah. time is today. So I would just say, if you're looking to get into this business and you want to grow and expand, start building those relationships now and just stay in touch with people and create consistent content, find ways to stay in touch with people. Because that's been my thing is you get so busy in just the management and the day-to-day of, of growing a business from the top down that you can forget to stay in touch with people and let them know what you're doing, keep them updated and things like that. Because when you do have an opportunity that comes by, you're going to need capital for it and you're going to wish that you, you stayed in touch and that kind of thing. So I would say just creating consistent content, staying in touch with people so you have the capital necessary to take advantage of the opportunities, you say. Yeah, and again, I'm going to give you a two-part answer here. And they both tie into why we've developed the strategy that we have. One, taking a long-term strategy, seeing the forest through the trees, building the portfolio that you hold and not sell. If I could go back and talk to my 28, 29, 30-year-old self and say, all those properties you acquired early on that you ended up selling because you thought you were making a nice profit, don't do that. Hold them because you bought right, you developed right. So that would be one. The other thing is the first time having a construction background prior to 2008, I decided to go ahead and take a chance and give some general contractors the opportunity to do our work for us. And it was an absolute disaster when I let go of that control and let somebody else do that. We didn't hit our numbers, our timelines. And again, that's another reason why we do things the way we do today. And what is your best ever advice? I would say just as simple as treat people the way that you want to be treated. When you're dealing with tenants, when you're dealing with investors, when you're dealing with other people, business colleagues, your partners, just always try to put yourself in the other person's shoes and make decisions based off of that. Because if you're good to people, I'd like to think that they can be good to you as well. But also understand too that everybody is in their own place and you can't know what's going on in their own personal life. So you know, treat people the way that you want to be treated, but at the same time, keep your head on straight and do what you have to do. And don't get too bogged down with if somebody doesn't reciprocate and treat you the way that you wish to be treated as well. So stay out of your head there and just do the right thing. And this way you could sleep at night and know that you did your best and you were good to everybody along the way. Yeah, I think that's a good answer. And just to expand on it a little bit, 
you're never better than anybody else. And the day you start thinking you are is not a good thing. We're all always learning. We're all evolving, whether it's in life or in business, it's a process. And there are lessons to take away from everything. Just be humble, be honest, and have integrity. That makes a lot of sense. Where can people get in touch with you? Sure. G-S-P-R-E-I.com. Our phone number's on there. You can call, text us. My email address is on there. You can email me anytime. You could schedule time with us through there. And you could join our email list. We do calls on a regular basis, open to investors to ask questions and things like that. So yeah, I would say start with our website and you can get all the info you need to contact us there. That link is in the show notes. Peter, Ron, thank you. Best ever listeners, thank you as well for tuning in. If you've gained value from this episode, please do subscribe to our show. Leave us a five-star review and share this episode with a friend you know we can add value to through our conversation today. Thank you and have a best ever day. Awesome. Slocum, thank you so much. And we appreciate everybody listening. Thank you. Hi, best ever listeners. Joe Fairless here again. And one last thing before you go, would you like to receive a short weekly email with proven tips from experienced investors, free tools and resources, and a roundup of the week's most relevant news and best ever content? Well, if so, join the community of nearly 15,000 commercial real estate passive and active investors who receive the best ever newsletter Just go to bestevercre.com forward slash access and you'll get the very next one. I hope you enjoyed this episode. And as always, thank you for listening and have a best ever day.